working families need help now. The House did the right thing, and now it is time for the Senate to step up to the plate and do what the working families of this country overwhelmingly want us to do. You tell them, Bernie. Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, and KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, and Seattle, Washington on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe. Streaming on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week. And here we are. 22 days until January 20th, Joe Biden's Inauguration Day. Eight days until Joe Biden's Electoral College defeat of Donald Trump will be affirmed or not by Congress. Yeah. Seven days until the final day for Georgians to cast their votes in the state's two critical ongoing U.S. Senate runoff elections that will determine control of the U.S. Senate. Early voting now underway. And, well... The next few days, where we'll find out the fate of the $2,000 check to you and me, the Cash Act, and the fate of the National Defense Authorization Act, and so much more. Hi, there is no such thing as a slow news day anymore. Welcome to the broadcast, usually hosted by Brad Friedman with an assist from Desi Doyen, but they're taking some well-deserved time off. So once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, a day when we can see just how broken our government really is. Now, a little later in the hour, we'll have a conversation with David Atkins. He's a writer and a progressive activist who is a California Democratic Party regional director and a fairly recent elected member of the DNC. During one night of insomnia a week or so ago, I happened upon a Twitter thread that he wrote about just how dysfunctional the Democratic National Committee is. And I knew we needed to talk. So we will. And I'll explain how some things just never change. But first, we've got lots of news. So let me bring you up to date on what's happening now. Is the Republican tide beginning to turn against dear leader? Donald Trump suffered two huge defeats Monday evening as House Republicans showed him what happens when you lose. The House reconvened on Monday to debate and vote on two bills. First up was the Cash Act. That's the bill version of Trump's demand for $2,000 direct payments to individuals instead of the $600 advocated for by Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin that Donald Trump called a disgrace. 130 Republicans voted against it. 44 voted in favor. All but two Democrats voted for the money. The two no votes, by the way, were Kurt Schrader of Oregon's 5th District and Dan Lipinski of Illinois. It was his parting shot as Lipinski was primaried and beaten by progressive Marie Newman. The final tally was 275 to 134. The almost unanimous support from the Democrats ensured it got the two-thirds necessary under the procedures that were used for consideration. Next, the House took up and overwhelmingly voted to override Trump's veto of the National Defense Authorization Act. The final tally was 322 to 87. 
A good number of progressives voted no, though obviously not in support of the president, but in voting no for the annual massive windfall for the military-industrial complex. The $740 billion bill does include pay raises for America's soldiers, also modernization for equipment and provisions to require more scrutiny before troops are withdrawn from Germany or Afghanistan. Trump says he vetoed it because it contained a provision calling for the Pentagon to change the names of military bases that honor Confederate generals. He also says he vetoed it because he wanted it to include the repeal of a law offering liability protections to social media companies. But there's another component in the NDAA that hasn't received as much attention, but is likely a big reason why Trump issued that rare veto. According to Heather Cox Richardson, who writes a brilliant nightly newsletter, the NDAA also includes a measure known as the Corporate Transparency Act, the CTA, which targets shell companies and money laundering in America. The act requires the owners of any company that is not otherwise overseen by the federal government by filing taxes or through close regulation or something similar to file a report that identifies each person associated with the company who either owns 25% or more of it, or exercises substantial control over it. That report, including the names, birthdays, addresses, and identifying numbers, goes to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN. The measure also increases penalties for money laundering and streamlines cooperation between banks and foreign law enforcement authorities. The U.S. is currently the easiest place in the world for criminals to form an anonymous shell company, which then enables them to launder money, evade taxes, and engage in illegal payoff schemes. We learned about that a couple of months ago when Jason Leopold of BuzzFeed News and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists dug into leaked documents from FinCEN. That's when they discovered shell companies moving money for criminals operating out of Russia, China, Iran, and Syria. We know that the Trump family uses shell companies. Trump's fixer, Michael Cohen, used a shell company to pay off Stormy Daniels. And just this month, we learned that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, approved a shell company that spent more than $600 million in campaign funds. So the new requirements in the NDAA apply not just to future entities, but also to existing ones. Hmm. So Congress needs to repass the NDAA over Trump's veto. Richardson surmises that it is likely that the CTA was included in this measure precisely because the NDAA is must-pass legislation. And both the CTA and the Defense Authorization Act bill into which it's tucked have bipartisan support. Again, Trump has objected to a number of things in the original bill, but has not publicly complained about the CTA. It'll be interesting to see if Congress repasses this bill in its original form, and if not, what changes it makes. And again, on Monday, the House passed the bill as written. It's just one more strand in Donald Trump's tangled web of lies and deception. On Tuesday, the action shifts to the Senate. The big question is whether Mitch McConnell will even bring the Cash Act up for a vote. It would need 60 to get through the chamber, meaning 12 Republicans would have to join with all the Democrats. Bernie Sanders, knowing how McConnell has operated during his time as Senate Majority Leader, issued a statement Monday evening saying that he will block the vote on overriding Trump's NDAA veto until McConnell schedules a vote on the $2,000 checks, threatening to delay the NDAA vote until January 1st and keep the Senate in session over the weekend. You go, Bernie. And that brings us to Tuesday at noon Eastern time. The Senate gaveled back into session. Mitch McConnell began by talking about the need to vote again to support the National Defense Authorization Act and said they'd vote on it on Wednesday. Then he went on to talk about the COVID relief bill that Donald Trump signed belatedly on Sunday night and the three areas of concern that he wants addressed. During this process, the president highlighted three additional issues of national significance which he would like to see Congress tackle together. First, as he explained, the president would like further direct financial support for American households 
Second is the growing willingness on both sides of the aisle to at least re-examine the special legal protections afforded to technology companies under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, including the ways it benefits some of the most prosperous, most powerful big tech firms. And the third subject, since every American, regardless of their politics, should feel the integrity of our democracy is beyond reproach, is exploring further ways to protect the sanctity of America's ballots while continuing to respect the federal government's limited role in standing behind state and local government who actually run elections. Those are the three important subjects the president has linked together. This week, the Senate will begin a process to bring these three priorities into focus. And then he tried to move on to different legislation until Chuck Schumer objected. So Schumer spoke and said that both bills passed by the House on Monday must be brought to the floor for a full vote by the Senate. He makes an impassioned case. And then he makes a motion, which McConnell shoots down. Would the senator modify his request to include unanimous consent that the Senate proceed to the immediate consideration of H.R. 9051, a bill received from the House to increase recovery rebate amounts to $2,000 per individual, that the bill be read a third time and passed, the motion to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table with no intervening action or debate. Is there objection to the modification? Object. Objection is heard. Is there objection to the original request? The senator from Vermont. Reserving the right to object. We should all be very, very clear. The working class of this country today faces more economic desperation than at any time since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And working families need help now, not next year, but right now. Last night, the House of Representatives, with a two-thirds majority, 275 to 134, two-thirds bipartisan vote, moved to increase the direct payment going to working families from $600 per adult to $2,000 per adult. The House did the right thing. I congratulate them. And now it is time for the Senate to step up to the plate and do what the working families of this country overwhelmingly want us to do. Madam President, as I mentioned, the House has done the right thing. By an overwhelming vote, Democrats and Republicans voted to increase that $600 direct payment to $2,000. So, Madam President, would the Senator modify his request that immediately following the vote on the veto override, the Senate proceed to the consideration of H.R. 9051, that the bill be considered read a third time, and the Senate vote on passage of the bill without intervening action or debate. Further, that if passed, the motion to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table. Is there objection to the request for modification? Object. Objection is heard. Is there objection to the original? I object. Objection is heard. Under the previous order, the Senate will be in a period of morning business with senators permitted to speak therein for up to 10 minutes each. So I watched it all play out. And I'll admit, I'm confused, but here's what I do know, what the Washington Post reported. Bernie Sanders threatened to block a planned Wednesday vote to override Trump's veto of the National Defense Authorization Bill unless Mitch McConnell relents and allows a standalone vote on the House cash bill, the $2,000 checks. He told reporters, quote, I don't know what he has in mind, but the House passed, to their credit, a simple, straightforward bill. Let's not muddy the waters. Are you for $2,000 or are you not? Sorry, I try. Sanders' threats scrambled a very tight timeline for the final days of the current Congress, which will end on Sunday when the new class of lawmakers is sworn in. How this plays out, I don't know, but maybe we'll find out tomorrow? It certainly won't be today because the Senate has adjourned until 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. 
what? And then at five o'clock tomorrow, Wednesday, there will be a live quorum followed immediately by a roll call vote on proceeding to the veto message on the Defense Authorization Act. What that means for Bernie Sanders, I don't know, but I just checked his Twitter feed. He retweeted a journalist who wrote, Mitch McConnell just blocked a proposal from Bernie Sanders for a vote on the House bill on direct payments for $2,000. And above that, Bernie wrote, we are at a historic moment. Do we turn our backs on working families who are hurting like they have never hurt before? Or do we provide them with the help they need? Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans are turning their backs. Enough. Let the Senate vote on $2,000 checks. I guess we'll find out more tomorrow. We'll be here. I'll see you then, right? Meanwhile, not only have some House Republicans for the first time gone against Donald Trump's wishes, on Monday, Rupert Murdoch's New York Post decimated Trump in a front page editorial telling him he lost and that it was time to move on. Well, on Tuesday, it's the Wall Street Journal editorial board taking their shot, proclaiming, quote, Trump gives Schumer an assist. The president writes a $2,000 check to make Democrats the majority. Ooh, snap. Well, President-elect Joe Biden spoke to the American people Monday afternoon after addressing the Christmas Day bombing in Nashville, something Trump still hasn't mentioned. Biden moved on to call out Trump's mishandling of the transition in no uncertain terms. Biden accused Trump and his political appointees of obstructing the transition of power to his incoming administration, particularly in the national security sphere. This marks a distinct escalation in tone after reports of isolated difficulties in the transition process last week. As we approach the end of the year, oh, thankfully, 2020 will go down in the history books as the planet's lost COVID year. Sadly, we end the year on a tragic and urgent note. The United States reported a record number of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 on Monday, 121,235 according to Johns Hopkins. With hospitalization rates this high, doctors are warning hospitals that they'll soon have to begin rationing care, essentially making life-or-death decisions about who gets the opportunity for treatment and who doesn't. Some hospitals are already employing battlefield-level triage techniques to keep pace with the number of patients pouring in. And as we approach the one-year mark of the pandemic, new figures released by the Chinese Center for Disease Control reveal the infection rate in Wuhan, where the virus first started, could have been 10 times higher than the original figures. Meanwhile, cases of that variant of COVID-19 that were discovered in the UK have been cropping up in other countries like South Korea and India. And Japan just announced that they are locking down for the next 30 days. Here in the U.S., as is their track record, the Trump administration completely screwed up the distribution of the newly available vaccines. They had promised something on the order of 20 million delivered vaccinations by the end of the year. Well, on December 29th, with two days remaining in said year, the number of vaccines injected stands at about one-tenth of that, or 2 million. 22 days, 22 days, 22 days. So the next big day in our move toward sanity is January 6th. Well, actually, it's January 5th. That's when Georgia goes to the polls in two separate Senate elections that will determine the control of the Senate in the 117th Congress. But I digress. The following day, January 6th, is when a joint session of the newly sworn Congress will convene with the Senate president, that is, the United States vice president, presiding for the final count and affirmation of each state's electoral college results. It's usually just a bit of formality, pomp and circumstance, if you will. But it's also Donald Trump's last gasp chance to steal the election. He still refused to concede and is grasping at any available straws to stay in power. To that end, Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas and a group of Trump's defeated electors from Arizona filed a lawsuit Monday against Vice President Mike Pence, trying to force him to side with Trump allies who want to overturn his 2020 election loss. 
The Republicans have asked a federal court to rule that Pence has the exclusive authority to choose electors when he oversees the vote certification on January 6th. Despite President-elect Joe Biden's victory, Republican electors held their own votes earlier this month in a move to disrupt the official process as Trump and his allies continue to make unfounded claims of widespread voter fraud. The lawsuit, which is widely considered to have no chance of succeeding, urges Pence to recognize the Republican electoral votes rather than the actual Democratic votes in those states. Again, you can't make this stuff up. Although no stunt of this sort has ever been successful, some have tried. Let's flash back to 2001. The Supreme Court had just stepped in and ordered Florida to stop counting votes in the race between Al Gore and George W. Bush and effectively handed the presidency to Bush, but not before a number of House Democrats objected to the tally. As you'll hear, then-Vice President Al Gore did his job as he presided over the flawed but final process of certifying those electoral college votes. Again, what it takes is one member of the House and one member of the Senate to sign off on this objection, and then it would have to go to both chambers for them to vote on certifying their electors. Here's a bit of what happened in 2001. Mr. President... There are many Americans who still believe that the results we are going to certify today are illegitimate. Mr. President, the certificate of the electoral vote of the state of Florida seems to be regular and informed and authentic and appears, therefore, and therefrom that George W. Bush of the state of Texas received 25 votes for president and Dick Cheney of the state of Wyoming received 25 votes for vice president. I must object because of the overwhelming evidence of official misconduct, deliberate fraud, and an attempt to suppress voter The chair must remind members that under Section 18 of Title III... Mr. President, I am objecting to to the idea that votes in Florida were not counted, and it's a sad day in America, Mr. President, when we can't find a senator to sign the objections. The gentleman will suspend. Mr. Vice President... I rise to object to the fraudulent 25 Florida electoral votes. Is the objection uh, in writing and signed by a member of the House and a senator? The objection is in writing, and I don't care that it is not, it is not signed by a member of the Senate. The, uh, the chair will advise that the rules do care, and uh, the, the signature of the senator... The the signature of a uh, senator uh, is required. Uh, The chair will uh, again put that part of the question. Is the objection uh, signed by a senator? Mr. Vice President, there are gross violations of the Voting Rights Act from Florida. Uh, And I object, uh, and it is not signed by a senator. Uh, the chair thanks the gentlewoman from California on the basis previously stated the point of order may not be received. The whole number of the electors appointed to vote for President of the United States is 538, of which a majority is 270. George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for President of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes. This announcement of the state of the vote by the President of the Senate shall be deemed a sufficient declaration of the persons elected President and Vice President of the United States, each for the term beginning on the 20th day of January 2001, and shall be entered together with a list of the votes on the journals of the Senate and the House of Representatives. May God bless our new President and our new Vice President, and may God bless the United States of America. Maxine Waters wasn't the only Democrat in the House who objected, but she certainly was the best. One more bit of House business on the calendar. On Sunday, Nancy Pelosi must win a floor vote to regain the speakership for the next Congress. Lawmakers must be present in Washington and on the House floor to vote for speaker. Proxy votes are not accepted in this instance. But several Democrats have COVID, and some have been really sick and unable to get to Washington. Politico reported Monday that Pelosi told Democrats that her, quote, opponent is COVID in the speaker race. But she then said, I'm fine, 
meaning she believes she'll win. All righty then. In other all too familiar news, the white Columbus, Ohio police officer who fatally shot an unarmed black man last week was fired on Monday. Columbus Police Chief Thomas Quinlan recommended firing Adam Coy, a 19-year veteran of the force, after determining that his shooting of Andre Hill was a, quote, unreasonable use of deadly force and an act of senseless violence. Body cam footage showed Coy shooting Hill 10 seconds into their encounter. Hill held up a cell phone as Coy and another officer arrived at a house where he was staying as a guest. Unbelievable. One more item regarding the January 5th runoff election in Georgia that will determine the control of the U.S. Senate. A federal judge ruled that more than 4,000 people in two Georgia counties were wrongly removed from voter rolls. The judge is Leslie Abrams Gardner. She said the counties had used unverified change of address data to invalidate registrations and that all those who were struck from the voter rolls must be reinstated. The vast majority of those registrations came from Muskogee County, which, according to Politico, leaned heavily toward President-elect Biden in November. A few hundred more came from Ben Hill County, which Donald Trump carried last month. Democratic Party attorney Mark Elias hailed the judge's decision as a, quote, blow to GOP voter suppression. We should also note that Judge Gardner, Judge Leslie Abrams Gardner, is the sister of Stacey Abrams, whose voter registration efforts in Georgia were widely credited with winning the state for Joe Biden. Let's hope for one more big win on January 6th. All right, so there's most of the news happening right now anyway. We'll take a quick time out, come back on the other side and talk about the Democratic Party. How we got here in the first place, I guess. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. All right, so we got caught up on the news. Now we have to get into what is the problem with the Democratic Party. During a bout of insomnia about a week or so ago, I happened upon a Twitter thread by an acquaintance of mine, David Atkins. He is a newly elected member of the DNC, and his this thread just went off on it. I'll post a link along with today's show at bradblog.com. But I just had to talk to David about the problems inherent in this party. David Atkins is a writer. You've read him at Washington Monthly and the American Prospect and many other places. He is also a regional director in the California Democratic Party and recently became an elected member of the DNC. And that's what his little Twitter thread screed was about last night. So, David Atkins, I got sucked into this thread you wrote about... The DNC. Now, you've been an activist. You've been involved in politics for years. Did you know that the organization itself was so dysfunctional? I knew that it it had a reputation for dysfunction um, in a variety of ways. Uh, When I there there were some DNC members who encouraged me to run for the DNC who were complaining about just how dysfunctional it was. And I have been so I knew some things, but I have been surprised at the degree to which 
it's not just dysfunctional, but I think completely opaque and very difficult for anyone who gets elected to it to accomplish almost anything at all. And that's one of the biggest problems. So what do you do as an elected member of the DNC? I mean, for the, for the average person and, hmm. and uh, you know, look, I've been active in, in politics from a, you know, a commentator standpoint for, for a long time now. And the thing I know about DNC members is they're the super delegates and they're the ones who come in, the party people who, who, sorry, um, put their finger on the scale and decide who the Democratic Party is going to nominate in too many cases. Um, am I off base there? A little bit. And so th- there's so many misperceptions about the DNC uh, that it's, it's very challenging um, to, to get through and try to explain some of what's right and some of what's wrong and, and where the correct perceptions and the misperceptions are. So I guess what I should start with is that the DNC member, there's about 400 DNC members, and each state has different rules for how the DNC members are picked. And most of them are not, in fact, big party bigwigs. The vast majority of the people who actually are DNC members are people who you've never necessarily heard, mm-hmm. um, even if you're a you know a political nerd. So, and so like I said, there's only like 400 in California. There's a pool of 20 who are elected by the state party's executive board, like 400 somewhat people. And then there's a bunch of appointees that are mostly filling out certain, uh, you know, diversity quotas, quotas and all of that stuff. Uh, And but in other states, they are directly appointed by like the governor or by a certain caucus or legislators or whatever. So it's different pools of people. Um, sometimes big wigs and not. Now, in terms of what a DNC member does, there's actually no major directive. So you get on the DNC and you go that you're supposed to have two meetings a year, but the meetings are very top down. There's no real way to have input. The meeting we had this year was by Zoom and it was webinar style. We couldn't even talk to each other. There oh, was boy. no way of like making motions. There, there, so there's nothing there's no there there in terms of being able to do anything. The DNC members don't even have each other's contact information. So we can't organize with each other wow. or anything. And we don't have anything particularly that we're supposed to do. When, when we have our new member orientations and do all of these things, we're basically asked to repeat the messaging that comes on from on high from the Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and all that Twitter accounts and to help raise money. Oh, right. That's it. That's it. We don't have any particular directives. There's not even any insider information that's really given out. You think, oh, you get to be a DNC member, you get you know, the background on, on the lowdown and what's going on behind the scenes. There is no, there's nothing like that. And what's crazy about that is, like I said, like whether they're appointed by a machine party system or whether they're elected uh, more democratically as in California, as I was, these are like the 400 top democratic activists picked in the entire country to serve on the national committee. Right. And there's, and there's no there's communication no power. There's no power. There's no communication. There's no directives. So even at that top level, there's nothing for us to do. The oh, the people who do things insofar as things get done are campaign staff, consultants, and the the threadbare uh, organizational staff. And it's not that many. Right. And you said it's like a skeleton crew there who it really doesn't do anything. Everyone else is unpaid. You're volunteers, basically. And you, what you say is the organizations within the DNC that do have power are the DCCC and the DSCC. That's the uh, the congressional and the senatorial campaign arms. So they actually they decide what candidates that they're going to back and, and put money into those races. The DNC doesn't do any of that. No. Uh, so this goes into another whole sort of misconception. I should say, like, the skeleton crew of staff in these organizations, they tend to do a lot of things, right. but they, they are typically overburdened. Most of these organizations are short-staffed on the permanent staff side. This goes for the state parties and everything else. As far as this divide is concerned, this is another broad misconception. People thinking that the DNC works hand-in-hand with the DSCC, the Senatorial right. Campaign Committee, or the DCCC, the Congressional Campaign Committee. I mean... In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. But there's no actual organizational connectivity. Hmm. If there is overlap between like the consultants who, and the subcontractors who might talk to each other in back channels, again, that's back channels. But there's no actual. That's insane. Organizational fruit there <laughs> on this stuff. And, the, and and like I said, like while the DNC 
you can like rise to a level where you get appointed by party bigwigs in some states or rise to a level where you get elected mm-hmm. in some states. The DCCC and the DSCC, literally the chairs of those organizations are picked by the Senate Democrats or the, the House Democrats. And they're run by staff who are then like appointed by that chair. Mm-hmm. And they're pay- and they have paid consultants who are paid for and picked by the chair. There's literally no pathway to get involved in that unless you came up through the campaign or consultant infrastructure and made it through that way. There's no internal method through the Democratic Party of becoming involved in those organizations. Wow. So now with all the we're speaking with David Atkins. And by the way, you can follow him on Twitter at David O. Atkins. And that's where you'll find this thread. So uh, as the Democrat, so I can vote in the primaries here in Florida. I've also been highly critical of the Democratic Party. Of course, I've been more critical of the Republican Party. I criticize the Democratic Party because I want them to do better. In fact, I don't know if you know this, I actually became a precinct committee woman this month. So I'm just getting involved in getting my taste of the Broward County, Florida Democratic Party and the Florida Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And I uh, uh, purposely, as I tend to do, put the accent on the duh syllable because it's a disaster. Everything about it. And the few Zoom meetings that I've attended so far are embarrassingly bad. And so maybe that's why I was so intrigued by your thread, because it's like, oh, my God. So I've been critical of the DNC going back. You know, I think the first time I realized how much vitriol I had for the organization was when Debbie Wasserman Schultz was head of the DNC. She, of course, is uh, just a district over from me. And, uh, you know, I've been hoping that we would that that district that uh, they would vote her out, but they still haven't. And um, in fact, we had a meeting last night. There was a Broward County, the December Broward County DEC meeting. And um, when Debbie came on the Zoom, I left. I I just I, I couldn't. But so my husband just handed me a note and he said, how much of this is Perez's fault? And I'll say Debbie's fault. And how much of it is baked in? Yeah. So this is the thing. Like people talk about there's two broad theories that like change the people or or change the structure. And it's a little bit of of both. Yeah. I think the organizational leaders get better. Obviously, Debbie Watson and Schultz made huge, horrible mistakes that caused black eyes to the organization. Um, Tom Perez has been a much better chair. Oh, but he's uh, than, horrible. Than, I'm sorry. Maybe he's been know, better, like, but he's no, like, terrible. There are huge, huge and valid critiques of the Perez leadership. I'm just like, I have to say that it, the, the DNC has operated in the 2020 campaign and primary much more transparently and fairly than it did in 2016. Gotcha. Still, there are huge, horrible, obviously huge problems organizationally. Um, and people can talk about it with regard to the instinct, the political instincts of the individuals involved. Uh, Perez is a lot more centrist than a lot of people might like and a lot more sort of institutionally focused than a lot of people might like. But, you know, politics is is one thing. The, the reality, though, is I like to talk about huge structural problems, because even if you had someone whose politics aligned perfectly with yours, whose political instincts, whose progressive personal instincts aligned perfectly with yours, the way the organization is structured leads to certain incentives and practices that make it very difficult to create changes unless you created huge structural changes in the organization. Hmm. And one of those is the fact that there literally isn't the organizational infrastructure capacity to to implement a a bottom to top small d democratic cultural um, uh, culture basically mm-hmm. in the organization and to enable it to do things. For instance, the DNC doesn't really even do anything in off years. There are four committees that don't do much of, of wow. anything. The uh, Of the 400 people serving in the DNC, 75 of them are appointed by the chair. There's a resolutions committee with no power to enforce its resolutions, and the resolutions committee is prevented from going beyond the dictates of its previous platform. So even if the resolutions committee wanted to say get the DNC in record in support of Medicare for all, it literally can't by its bylaws. Wow. Um, and like I said, it doesn't have organizational capacity. I, I think you know one of the things we need to back up 
here is that the Democratic Party is made up of thousands of organizations that are all connected by charter. Mm-hmm. And it's like local dem clubs who are chartered by the, their county committees. Right. County committees, it's more complicated than this, but to keep it simply, we're kind of chartered by their states. State, right. And then the states are connected to the nationals, but the DNC and the states don't really interact that much, except in some swing states in presidential years. It's really the D-TRIP and the DSCC that interact with the mm-hmm. state parties. But there's no ongoing mobilization and no way to connect up up the pyramid. So functionally what happens is it's a shell. There's a, there's a bunch of money that comes into the organization like a fire hose, and then the leaders of the organization's pick favored consultants and people who came up through campaigns uh, pay those people a bunch of money to do things like voter reg drives or whatever, or lots of TV ads. Yeah. yeah. Too many TV uh, ads. Yeah. Right. Um, and some on the ground mobilization, like they'll figure out like how many people they want to put on the ground for door knocking or whatever. But all and and then they'll dictate like primary schedules, like the Iowa caucus situation where they like had they they, they told the Iowa Democratic Party that they had to hire a certain app company that was like a connected consultant. And then they told the Iowa party that they had to do that to keep like certain privileges they had. Yeah. But keep in mind, none of that was voted on by the DNC members. Right. And I don't know if this is related to what you're talking about, but the policy by Sherry Bustos and the DCCC that if you were going to work on a campaign that was challenged, that was primarying an incumbent, that you are blackballed from ever working with the party ever again. I'm sorry, that's very undemocratic. Yes, it is. And there's two things that's important to note about that. Uh, Well, three, actually. One is that that's the DCCC. So Mm -hmm. nobody voted on that policy. Sherry Bustos just decided on that policy, number one. Number two, um, it speaks to the power of the consultantocracy, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because... I mean, well, number two, obviously, is it's it's a terribly anti-progressive policy and is selectively enforced. Like they aren't select, they aren't enforcing it <laughs> on centrist challengers to progressives. They're only selecting it on progressive challengers to centrist. And there's the whole political conversation about that policy, obviously. But I think from a structural standpoint, the it it shows how much it's all about who get who the consultants are. Right. right. What they were saying is, if you want to make it in this game. If you want to continue to get hired, you have to do things the way we say it. And the only way to actually be in the game is to be a consultant. So it was a war of some consultants on the progressive side being blackballed by what functionally amounted to consultants on the centrist side. Right, right. But what you didn't see in any of that was an actual body of like a thousand high level Democrats voting on what this should be like and taking positions and hashing this out in meetings or like. There is none of that. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen at the D trip for sure. Right. And while there's window dressing for it at the DNC, it doesn't happen at DNC either. Nobody voted on, you know, when, when the qualifications for who got to be in the debates as, as things move forward happened. No one was voting on that. The 400 members of the DNC didn't have a say in that. Just Perez and his <laughs> team of whoever was deciding wow. and you can wow. like Perez's decisions or not. You can like John you can like Tom Perez personally or not. It, it, like functionally, that's a bad way to run an organization. Yes. You can't do things that and, way. And what you say in this in this threat, and I encourage everyone to read it, is um, you said right now it's the worst of both worlds. Too much money, too little structure. And so are they operating off of like old bylaws? I know in these meetings I've been to, everything is Robert's rules and they're out of order and you need a second and you need a third and you need this. And it's like, oh, my God, our 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 county uh, elections on Sunday went on for over six hours because of this nonsense. And now I'm seeing that this is it on a wider scale, too. Again, this is this starts to get complicated. When I first got involved in local democratic politics, I mm-hmm. found the Ventura County Young Democrats, and I started to get involved in the Ventura County uh, Central Committee. I saw, I knew, I knew nothing about Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> uh, I saw this problem. This is a problem that many new activists have. Yeah, is they come in and everything works by like I move that, uh, you know, I, I I call for a division. You have to second this motion. The yeah. chair has to recognize you. It, it comes off as very antiquated and weird and and 
not transparent. Um, I, when you get involved over a certain amount of time, you, you, you learn to love Robert's rules because nobody has yet devised a better way of putting 50 people or more into a room. Like keeping order. Keeping order, figuring out how to protect a minority, mm-hmm. uh, how to how to how to make sure the majority gets its way without without abusing its power. It, there's a reason why everything is the way it is under Roberts, and it's very like distressing to anyone who comes at it new, and it feels <laughs> <Hello>. very <laughs> yes. anti dynamic. Right? Mm-hmm. There are many theories for how you improve that problem. The the hostile to new activists problem with the Roberts rule structures. The challenge with the DNC is, man, it would be nice if there were some Roberts rule structures. Wow. <laughs> the challenge with the DNC is not that. It's not these six-hour meetings to elect people or make um, you know, endorsements, which is its own problem. Mm-hmm. But that's a good problem to have. Okay. At the DNC, the problem is nothing comes to a vote at all. There is no capacity for a member to make a motion or to try to get the attention of a committee. 75 people of the 400 are appointed directly by the chair. So if you were to ever even bring something to a vote, try to get a motion, try to get a second, try to get something passed, there's many procedural hurdles, and the majority of the body would vote against you by virtue of the number of appointees the chair gets to make to block it. Right, their own superdelegates, so to speak. Basically, yeah. I mean, if you have that many appointed people then you're going to have an institutional blockade against Mm -hmm. anything. And then, of course, you have the problem that that there are committees, like the the rules committee that determines what the bylaws are, of course, is appointed by the chair. And you don't get to speak, you you don't get to vote on stuff about rules unless the rules committee does it first. And by the time the rules committee has hashed out what they're doing and brings it before the floor, it was a done deal. It's already decided. So it would be great if we could have a three hour boring Roberts rules meeting, we we're not even to that point. Wow. So this is one of the challenges we have that there are, there's a letter that has been penned and signed by 34 members of the DNC, including uh, my friend and trailblazer on these issues, Michael Cap from the, uh, from the California delegation. Okay. Asking for reforms, calling on president like Joe Biden and whoever the new DNC chair will be to consider some, serious reforms to the to the way this is done but right now like it would be great just to be able to get motions on the floor and you really can't wow okay so i'm reading what one of your the the, uh, 16th tweet in the thread said it would ironically be better if the democratic party did run like a big corporation big corporations get input from local division leaders who report up the chain and influence decision making successful local leaders get promoted no such organizational capacity exists. And then um, I saw somebody who retweeted the thread is um, Rachel Bitkoffer. If I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but she this is what she does. She analyzes elections and political strategies and stuff. And she wrote everything at David O. Atkins writes here is correct. And yes, it's worse because the RNC is an organized opposition with a national organization that is like a corporation or government entity, does coordinate and has each other's cell numbers and uses them to execute long term strategic plans. So once again, they play the long game. And and we, you know, and you said my biggest criticism always of like the Green Party is that they emerge every four years and run a candidate for president. And now you're telling me the DNC basically does that, too, that they're they're dormant for a while in between big elections. Is there a way to fix this, I guess, is the question. Wow. Uh, So, yes, and it and it comes from a lot of different angles um some people of course are just more revolutionary about the stuff change the people in power throw out all the throw the bums out get new people in uh, i tend to be more animal form about that if you don't change the structures you're not going to change the results mm-hmm. um and you know but you have you know personnel does matter but look you have to change some of the ways that the dnc does business but this is also a problem of the culture of the democratic party we are afraid of certain kinds of centralization 
Um, and we see it as a, as a democratic strength that we're loosely connected in all these ways through charters uh, of states and, and national bodies and that no one has too much dictatorial power over anybody else. But of course, it, it doesn't lead to more democratic decision making. It, it leads to a bunch of things happening in back rooms and consultants making all the decisions. The second thing culturally is partly because of the McGovern experience, the Reagan experience. A lot of the people in charge of the Democratic Party are very afraid of the Democratic base. The, the Republican Party leans into its base. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democratic Party is afraid of its base and afraid that if the base gets too much of its way, that uh, it will scare off the moderates. And so in a large part, they don't want to have ground up sort of feedback from progressives or just core Democrats because they believe that the consultants are the keepers of the re- of the good strategy and that if you allow it to get out of their hands – that hell will break loose. Wow. Um, and that's got to change. There has to be, and, and, that, and that corrupts things at a, uh, at a lot of levels. Like in Maine, for instance, um, you know, when the, when all the consultants got in, like you can believe that Sarah Gideon was a good candidate against Susan Collins or not, <laughs> no, right? right? But the reality is the Mainers have a different way of approaching politics. Um, hardcore partisan hellfire is not, effective in Maine. And right. Mainers will tell you that. But the DTRIP and the DSCC, and to a certain extent the DNC, they run the same game plan everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they went, you know, hardcore partisan flame on Sarah Gideon, tying her to, you know, Donald Trump and, or sorry, on uh, Susan Collins and, right. and all oh, the rest yeah. of it. Right. And the Mainer and the local Mainers were saying, no, like, this is not going to work. This is backfiring. And, and they wouldn't listen. They don't listen, right. Right. And, and, and the same thing happens in a lot of other places. And there's no way for, say, a county Democratic Party chair in a place like Maine or even a high level executive board member of the Maine Democratic Party to tell the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee's consultants who have been brought in on, on wings to, to help Sarah Gideon mm-hmm. to say, don't do this. Like right. you know better. Please don't right. do this. There's they, they can try to initiate a conversation in back channel, but there's no organizational way to vote to make that stop. Wow. Because it's all handled at the consultant side by people who are not democratically accountable. And, and when I talked about what happened to the activists, you have the same kind of thing. You have people, and of course, all of them are unpaid. The regional directors, right. most of the state, like, none of them are unpaid. So people right. are doing it in their volunteer time. You get great activists who come up and they get positions at the county level or at the state level, like regional directors or executive board members or county party chairs or whatever. They don't get paid. They have no pathway toward an actual power position. The way you get power is you work on a campaign or you work for a consultant. The the consultancy thing, that is a scam. I'm sorry. And they suck so much money on every end. I mean, I mentioned something earlier about they spend too much on commercials. Not only do they spend too much money on television commercials, but the damn consultants take a big cut from placing the ad when they produce the ad on every angle. It's they're they're scammers Um, until I think and we got like two minutes left. The way out of this is, yes, replace the leadership with somebody who, you know, has new ideas, but it's not that easy, is it? Yeah, look, and some of the consultants are great and smart, but they shouldn't be like, regardless, they shouldn't be in the position to dictate. Right. Like they they should be doing what the organization tells them to do in a democratic fashion Mm -hmm. and providing their expertise. So yeah, look, hopefully we have the opportunity. Nothing changes overnight. Like Joe Biden is going to, we're going to have new leadership, probably Jamie Harrison. There's a, there's a window opening to help change the culture of the DNC. Mm -hmm. 
changing the culture of the D trip and the SEC is a whole other ball game, but there, there's a window here. If we can get folks. And if you're, if you have listeners ask your, look up who your DNC members in your state are and ask uh-huh. them to sign on to the letter. They'll know what they're, what, what they're talking about towards some of these uh, structural reforms, reducing the power of appointment, in the chair, reducing that 75 people that there he's unable to appoint uh, opening up the process for you know, allowing more of these things to be voted on by the membership. Um, you know, putting the, the, the small D democracy into the democratic. Yeah. And yes, we do need a more full-time year round organizational capacity in the DNC. It would actually help to have a larger, more powerful, more democratically accountable organization with more permanent employees to actually do the work that the Democratic Party needs to do year round. Well, David Atkins, I'm glad you're a member because uh, I, if anyone can fix it, you can. We'll return in a moment and I'll share with you a letter from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I'm not kidding. From 1929, four years before he was elected president, complaining about the DNC, exactly the same thing that David Atkins has been talking about for the last 25 minutes or so. Stick around. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler, inviting you to check out my show anytime at NicoleSandler.com. There's no paywall. So just come on over, explore and listen. Hopefully you'll like what you hear. So in the last segment, we spoke to David Atkins, a recent elected member of the DNC who has been sounding off about the problems that he has found inherent in the organization. What I've discovered is this is nothing new. I aired this interview on my show last week. And a listener wrote and shared with me a letter from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I kid you not saying basically the same things. It was dated December 5th. It looks like 1928. It's a blurry photo of a typewritten letter. The letterhead along the tops just reads Franklin D. Roosevelt. And it's written to Mr. J.F. Dutton of Bristol, Connecticut. And the letter reads thusly. My dear Mr. Dutton, after discussing the recent national election with party leaders from all sections of the country and studying the figures with some care, I am convinced that had our party maintained an active and aggressive national organization during the past four years, as the Republican Party has done, the Democratic vote would have been very materially increased, certainly enough to make the election exceedingly close and possibly to a sufficient degree to have enabled us to elect our candidate. The principles and beliefs of our party and the merits of our candidates cannot, in my judgment, be properly brought to the attention of every voter of the country through an organization, no matter how efficiently and skillfully managed, which is not created until some weeks after the nominations are made and which has barely six weeks in which to convince a majority of 40 million voters. 40 million voters. Day in and day out for the past four years, the Republicans have been selling the wonderful virtues of their party through systematic and organized publicity, which we were unable to make any serious attempt to meet. I believe the time has come to establish an aggressive fighting organization for the next four years. But before taking the matter up with the leaders of our party, I want to have the correctness or incorrectness of conclusions passed on by those best able to judge of the effect of such a rigorous national organization in their own districts. I am, accordingly, writing the Democratic county leaders throughout the country as listed in the files of the Democratic National Committee. Will you write me, frankly, what you think of the effect of the support of an all-year-round fighting national organization will have in your own district, not only on congressional elections of two years hence, but in the next presidential election four years from now? 
I will also appreciate any suggestion as to the exact nature of the work which this organization should undertake and how it would be most helpful to you in your own county. I hope you will feel that your comments will be of real service to your party and will reply at a very early date. Very sincerely yours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Proving that the more things change, the more they stay the same. We've got a lot of work to do. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. we got one more day to figure it all out. And then we break for the holiday again. And then, who knows? But Brad and Desi will be back to deal with it. <laughs> so thank you for listening. I'll see you again tomorrow. For Brad Friedman, Desi Doyen, I'm Nicole Sandler, saying to all of us, good luck, world. Yeah,